This morning, we come back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and uh, we have uh, an interesting sermon title. As you've probably noticed, I have staff people who try to torment me sometimes, <laughs> and sometimes they make up little mock bulletins and put them in my box and try and scare me with them. And uh, this week, when I looked in there, I saw Danger Will Robinson. And I thought, hmm. When I was growing up in the 1960s, there was uh, one of the first-generation outer space series called Lost in Space. It was pretty pathetic. It was like one set that they just wandered around on the whole time. (laughs) And uh, some of you who are a little bit older probably remember it. Those who are younger may remember, I think, you know, four or five years ago, they had a movie called Lost in Space that came from that. And, and one of the characters in both the series and the movie was this robot, and its name is Robot, um, not too fancy. And uh, it was kind of the, one of the astronauts' pets, uh, Will Robinson's pet. And the robot was always malfunctioning. It was always breaking down, and it had all these great gadgets that could do all these things, but they never worked. But uh, the one thing that seemed to work on a consistent basis with this robot is that it was able to sense and pick up danger. And so almost every single uh, you know, episode, this robot would cry out, Danger! Will Robinson! To try and warn uh, the people that some you know, alien or something was coming upon them. Well, this morning we come to a text in 1 Timothy 4 where Paul cries out, Danger, Timothy. Danger to the church and danger to Christians. He warns us of a common danger that every Christian will encounter and many professing Christians will be doomed by. It is the danger we must be ready and equipped to deal with. It is the danger of apostasy and demonic doctrines. Paul has already addressed false teachers in chapter 1. And after addressing those false teachers in chapter 1, he then moves on to prayer and the need for evangelistic prayer and addresses men's and women's roles. And then in chapter 3, he, he talks about the qualifications for elders and deacons and women who serve. And he finishes up chapter 3, if you remember, with the purpose statement of the book. If you have your Bibles open, you will see in verse 14 where he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And this right here gives us, in a nutshell, the very reason why the church still exists here on earth. We are to be a pillar in support of the truth. That is what we are. That is what the church of the living God is. Every ministry in this church, in every church that it pleases God, is to be derived from the Scriptures, function by the Scriptures, and have as its primary focus the application and proclamation of the Scriptures, the truth. And that is what God wants us to be doing as a church. And so after saying that we are to have this function as a church, he then gives us an example in verse 16 of the kind of truth that we are to be a pillar in support of. And he says, if you look in verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he lists six key doctrines of Christ in his first coming. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This, he says, is the kind of truth we are to be upholding. This is the kind of truth we are to be a pillar in support of. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he now switches to give us an example of the kind of truths we are to avoid, the kind of truths we are to be aware of, the kind of dangerous things that every Christian needs to be equipped to deal with. And so if you have your Bibles, look at 1 Timothy 4.1, and notice what he says there. But the Spirit explicitly says that in 
latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. Here Paul lays out for us Three dangers you must constantly be on guard against. The first is, be on guard against apostasy. Secondly, be on guard against demonic doctrines. And third, be on guard against those who peddle demonic doctrines. The people of God have always struggled with this. There has always been a battle, a cosmic battle, which the the church has had to fight. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians where he talks about um, we have been given these divinely powered weapons for the destruction of fortresses. And he's not talking about literal fortresses. He is talking about what he defines as every lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of God. That is where our battle is. It is a battle for the truth. And we battle, he says, by taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. That's what he wants us to do. He wants all of us, you and me, to take every thought captive into obedience to Christ because Satan's strongholds are strongholds in the mind, strongholds in the heart, lies propagated that people have believed and now are deceived by and in many cases damned by. And this is nothing new. It has been constant ever since the garden, ever since Satan um, told lies to Eve. He has attacked at this one area. He has attacked the truth of God and turned it into a lie. Listen to what the Lord says through Ezekiel. Ezekiel, speaking against the false prophets of his day, says this in Ezekiel 22, 25, and 26. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. and They have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. Here the Lord pictures these false prophets, these false priests, as roaring lions, tearing and ripping at his people, devouring lies with their false doctrines, doing violence to his law. The scriptures teach that one of the greatest evils, one of the greatest sins that can be committed, is to teach error as if it was truth. To take Somebody and give them something which you say is a cure, but which is really poison. To give them false doctrine wrapped up in distorted and twisted scriptures ripped out of context. We have all probably seen one of those nature shows where the poor wounded or sickly wildebeest is preyed upon by hungry lions. I mean, if you're watching the Discovery Channel and there's a wildebeest, you know that that wildebeest has about as much chance to live as an extra on Star Trek. (laughs) I mean, that thing is going down. And soon they are stalked, attacked, killed, and devoured by hungry lions or jackals or whatever. And this is how God most frequently pictures false teachers as predators circling the flock of God, looking for people who are weak in doctrine, lame in their beliefs, 
Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said this in Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are what? Ravenous wolves. Starving wolves. He pictures a group of sheep, defenseless, no claws, uh, not real smart, not real fast, easy to grab onto, tasty to eat, and a group of very starving, hungry, vicious wolves being placed in their midst. And you can just imagine the carnage of such a situation. And Jesus says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. He's not saying they're dressed up like sheep. He's saying they are wearing sheep's clothing. That is wool, the normal dress of a pastor, a shepherd. They come to you looking like a shepherd, but they are really ravenous wolves waiting to devour you. Paul speaking to the elders at Ephesus, the church that Timothy is pastoring, the church that he met with the elders just a few years previous in Miletus, he said this in Acts 20, verses 29 through 30, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And guess what? He left, and guess what? The wolves came. And now Timothy is dealing with them. And that's why Paul writes what he writes here before us today. The picture is of a pack of hungry wolves, the savage wolves, rushing into the flock of helpless sheep and devouring them. And he says it happens when men rise from within and from without and speak perverse things. Peter in 1 Peter 5.8 said this, Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, lions, when they're full, when they've eaten, they're quiet. But when they get hungry, they begin to roar and soon after begin to hunt. And Satan's favorite hunting ground is the church here on Sunday morning. Satan, like a hungry lion, is looking for the theologically weak and the doctrinally impaired who, for one reason or another, don't know the truth, who think they're Christians but are not, and he wants to devour them with error. False teachers are like ravenous wolves and lions because they rip people up with the claws of demonic lies and the teeth of false doctrine. And that's how they're frequently pictured in the scriptures. And this is why you must be on guard, and you must watch, and you must pray, and you must be alert. Why? Because there is a danger of being devoured by error. I have chased several false teachers away from this church. Since I have been here one Sunday morning, I got here a little bit earlier. I, my family wasn't with me. I forget what happened, but I got here, and you know, when my family isn't there, I get here real early. And so I'm standing out there, um, just alone, scared everybody away, I guess. And um, this gentleman comes in, looks very nice, very well-dressed, comes up to me, starts talking to me, and all of a sudden he just starts spewing lies. I mean, out of his mouth. And he's looking at me to see what kind of reaction I'm going to give him. So I thought, you know, I wonder what this guy believes. So I just started asking him questions. And he thinks I'm going for it. And he starts telling me about how you you need to do certain things in order to be saved. And that, um, you know, he starts talking about these weird baptism things. And, you know, if you don't do this, you can't get to heaven. He's teaching me this false gospel. And I just let him go on for a while. And then I said, sir, I'm the pastor of this church. You see the door right there? 
leave and never come back. You think, well, what if he didn't come to me? Well, by God's providence, he did. One of the elders just happened to show up when I was showing him the door. And what you need to realize is sometimes they're going to come to you. Sometimes very well-intentioned, very articulate people who seem to really know a lot about the Bible, but everything they seem to know about the Bible seems a little bit twisted from what you've understood. And they have reasons, but you can't quite put your finger on it. It's just everything's a little bit distorted. Everything's a little bit askew. A false teacher is one who singles out individuals alone, never in a group. They are not accountable to the elders... They complain against the leadership, but never talk to the leadership directly. They look for the weak, for the undiscerning or the disgruntled. And then they try to feed them full of lies. They, they try to encourage them that, you know, well, you know, we need to start a revolt here. We need to get a petition going. We need to start, we need to, we need to, uh, you, we need to become our own little group. We need to go off on our own. And pretty soon, he is leading them astray. And this is what our text is all about. Let's look at 1 Timothy 4.1. The first point we want to look at today is found in verse 1. That is, be on guard against apostasy. Paul writes, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. Now just stop there. In the preceding verse, again, Paul has just said, here is some great doctrine which you are to uphold. Here are some bad things which you are to be on guard against. And he gives us three, three truths related to this thing we are to guard against called falling away from the faith. First, he gives us the certainty of it happening, the Spirit explicitly says. Secondly, you are told the time frame in which it is certain to happen in the last times. And third, you are told what you are to be on guard against, some will fall away from the faith. I want to look at each of these a little closer. Notice the text read, reads, the Spirit explicitly says. Now this implies something, doesn't it? How did Paul know? what the Spirit was explicitly saying. Well, because Paul was one of those few individuals that got inspired to write the New Testament, the Word of God. And this is why Paul wrote to Second Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it comes from God, is inspired by God. The Bible that we have here is God breathed revelation. It is perfect. It is flawless. It is without error. It can be totally trusted and it is never changing. It is a binding upon your life and upon my life. When you open your Bible and read what it says, God speaks. People want to hear from God? Open your Bible. Let Him speak to you. The reason we call the Bible the Word of God is because it's the Word of God. We don't call it the Word of God because it has some of the Word of God in it. We call it the Word of God because all of it is the Word of God. It is God's Word. David, the writer of many inspired psalms, described the process of inspiration with these words. Speaking about how God spoke through him, he said this in 2 Samuel 23, 2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His Word was on my tongue. Notice how, how, he, sees, how he, he, he sees the whole process of him writing all of these psalms. He says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His words were on my tongue. So even though David was speaking, and even though David wrote the Psalms and penned them out, whose words were those? Those were God's words on His tongue. Ezekiel, describing his commissioning to the ministry, said this in Ezekiel 3, 24-27. He's describing how, how as a prophet, God 
was going to speak through him. And this is what we read. The Spirit of then entered me and made me stand on my feet. And he spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself up in your house. As for you, son of man, they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be mute and cannot be a man who rebukes them for they are a rebellious house. Now that doesn't sound like a very good ministry commission, does it? Now you go home. I'm going to shut your mouth, and they're going to persecute you, and when you try to rebuke them, I'm not going to let you. Bummer. Then he says this in verse 27, But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth, and you will say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. God says, listen, Ezekiel, right now, for right now, it's going to be a little persecution. I don't want you to say anything. They're going to reject you. Your ministry is going to be a big bummer. But I want you to know, when I'm ready to speak to you, it's not going to be a feeling. It's not going to be an intuition. It's not going to be an idea or a sensing. That's mysticism. When I speak to you, it will be clear. It will be articulate. It will be flawlessly revealed language formulated by the Spirit of God. I will put it on your tongue and you will say to them, Thus says the Lord. That is revelation. That is what Paul is talking about here in the text before us. The Spirit explicitly says. Now turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is such a key text, and I've taught on it right when I first got here, but we need to look at it again because it is so crucial into understanding the sufficiency and value and inspiration of the Word of God. This whole first chapter is about the Word of God. And after giving his little introduction in 2 Peter, verses 1 through 2, he says this in verse 3, look there. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now look at where it comes from, from this everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Then he goes on to define that a little bit further. So where does this true knowledge of him come from? For by these, these these things pertaining to life and godliness, which bring us the true knowledge of Him, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. He says not only is the word of God, these, the, truth, the truth of God, the word of God, not only does it give you everything pertaining to life and godliness, it also saves you. And it also transforms you and makes you a partaker of the very divine nature of Christ. And then in verses 5, all the way down through 15, he explains because we are saved, because we have the true knowledge of God contained in the Word of God, we need to do what the Word of God says. And he gives a whole bunch of instruction there. But look at verse 16. He knows that Satan will move in. Uh, You tell people the Bible has everything you need. They know that. If you were to quiz them, they'd tell you that. They have a problem. You ask them, hey, have you looked at the Word of God? No. Huh, that's interesting. Well, I thought you said it has... Well, yeah, it does, but I have some problems. And all of a sudden, their life really kind of contradicts what their mouth is saying. And what they're really arriving upon is, I got this great magazine at the newsstand, or I was watching a TV program, or I talked to some friends at work, or on and on. People just will go to great extremes to look at everything and study everything but the Word of God. They just don't want to get into it and find those verses and find those passages and find that truth in the Word of God to 
search diligently and search for it as hidden treasure in gold so they can find out what God wants them to do. And so they go to other things that are easier. But one of the greatest and most subtle deceptions of all is experience. Is experience. Because in the last times, we are told that Satan comes on the scene with great signs and false wonders, experiences, to deceive what? Even the elect. Satan would love to give you an experience if you are willing to buy a lie for it. And many people get those experiences, and many people set aside the truth of God for a lie. And Peter knows this. He knows it's coming. He knows this is what happens. And so he says this. For we did not follow, in verse 16, cleverly devised tells when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now he's talking about the man of transfiguration here. He knows people are going to be tempted by Satan to trust and experience over the word of God. And so now he's pulling the trump card of his experiences. He says, I want you to know. We weren't making up something. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. And we were with him on the holy mountain. Notice the three things he appeals to here. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty at the end of verse 16. The beginning of verse 18, we ourselves heard this utterance. And the end of verse 18, we were with him on the holy mountain. We heard the very voice of God. We heard the thunderous voice of God from heaven. We heard God speak. Now that is just, I mean, the only other people who get to hear that, you know, were the people on Mount Sinai. To hear the voice of God, and then they told Moses, Moses, you speak to us. We don't want God to speak to us. It scared him spitless. And here he says, we heard God speak. And not only that, we got to see Jesus. Jesus in his kingdom glory and Elijah and Moses. And we saw it and we heard it and we were eyewitnesses of it. Can you believe that? And that's what he wants him to know. And then... Look at verse 19. Talk about experiences. Here it is. Verse 19. So we, you should put and there, and we is how it should read, have the prophetic word. Take out made there. The prophetic word more sure. More sure than what? More sure than the most incredible experience you could have. You're thinking, really? That's a pretty big statement there. Then he says, because it's more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, which he also means you do unwell, you do bad to not pay attention to it. Or in other words, you don't do well if you pay attention to any other thing, even incredible experiences, in opposition to the Word of God. The Word of God is the touchstone of everything we do and everything we believe. Now, after having said, we have the prophetic word made more sure, after having said, you do well to pay attention to it, he then explains why. Why the Word of God is so important. Look at verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. What? Spoke from God. That is why your Bible is the thing you do well to pay attention to. That it is more reliable than any experience. But what happens is, is Satan comes in. He comes in knowing what's, what's going to draw people away, knowing that people are going to believe all sorts of things. And so he says, listen, 
Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, and that is why you can trust the Word of God. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says, the Spirit explicitly says. Now, Paul is giving us the absolute certainty of the danger of apostasy. It is absolutely certain to happen. Now, notice the second truth here that we find in 1 Timothy 4.1. The second truth we come to in this first line is the time frame in which the danger is certain to happen. Notice how he describes it, in the last times. That's when it's going to happen, in the last times. Times. And you have to ask yourself, okay, when are these last days or last times? I mean, where do, you, where do you find out where the latter times are? I mean, how do you know that? Well, let me tell you. If you looked at Hebrews 12, uh, 1, verses 1 and 2, this is what you'd read. Listen to this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. The author of Hebrews says that the last days started when Jesus came to this earth at his first coming. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.20, says, speaking of Christ, that Christ has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. John in 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, from this we know that it is the last hour. These verses tell us, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the last times, the last times that the danger will appear in, the danger of apostasy, is right now. It is the time between Jesus' first coming and the time between his second coming, the church age, when apostasy will be a danger to be avoided. And this brings us to the third truth found in the first part of verse 1, which tells us what we are to be on guard against. It says, some will fall away from the faith. Some who say they are Christians who are deceived into thinking they're Christians, who are certain they are Christians, will totally abandon and fall away from the faith. The phrase fall away means to depart or abandon or fall away from that which is formerly embraced. It is a much stronger word than going astray. It's not talking about you know some sheep just wandering off, some person kind of just getting their way lost. It describes a person who thoroughly knows something, who is thoroughly acquainted with something, embraces it fully, and then divorces it, rejects it, walks away from it, and says, no more. It is the word we get apostasy from in the Greek. Somebody professes to know Christ and then turns away. It's the same word Jesus used in the parable of the soils. In Luke 8.13, where he is interpreting the parable of the soils, you remember what happened, there's the, the sower who went out to sow, and uh, he is sowing the seed, and some of it falls, of course, on good ground, others fall on the path, and others fall among the weeds, and there's another category that falls among the rocky soil, you remember that. And this is how Jesus interprets that seed sowed among the rocky soil. Those on the rocky soil, he says, are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, apostatize, fall away. Now notice what Jesus describes here, how he describes these apostates. He hears the word, he receives the word, he receives the word and is happy about it. Oh man, good sermon! With joy! And he believes for a while. I believe this! But then he shows his true colors. And he rejects what he has formerly professed to embrace. People, there is nothing worse than apostasy. Apostasy is to make oneself a Judas 
and to hang oneself on the rope of unbelief. The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines apostasy as a deliberate repudiation and abandonment of the faith that one has professed. Carl Berg in the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology defines apostasy as a defection from the faith, an act of unpardonable rebellion against God and His truth. The sin of apostasy results in abandonment of the Christian doctrine and conduct. He goes on to say, apostates place themselves under the curse and wrath of God as a covenant breaker, having entered into, get this, a state of final and irrevocable condemnation. End quote. What could be more dangerous? What could be more serious? What could be more eternally life-threatening than irrevocable condemnation with no chance of being saved? Thomas Watson, quoting the early church father Tertullian, says, The apostate seems to put God and Satan in the balance. And having weighed both their services, prefers the devil's service and proclaims him to be the best master. And in this sense may be said to put Christ to open shame, Hebrews 6.6. 6. He will never suffer for the truth, but be as a soldier that leaves his colors and runs over to the enemy's side. He will fight on the devil's side for pay, end quote. But let's let the scripture, let's let the Spirit of God speak directly to these issues. Turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, the Sermon on the Mount, the apostles come to Jesus. They say, hey, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus begins to tell them. He tells them a lot of things, but one of the things he tells them is the very thing that Paul is telling Timothy in our text. Look at Matthew 24:10. Jesus speaking of the last days says this, at that time many will fall away, apostatize, and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now, this is a great text in and of itself, but notice this. The time will come in the last days. People who once professed to be believers, who professed to be Christians, will dump Christianity altogether. He says that it will happen through false teachers who arise and deceive many. And he says it will result in increased lawlessness... And people's love growing cold. He says, most people's love will grow cold. It will get worse. As the end of the time approaches, it will get worse. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.12. Now just listen to this. This kind of seems strange at first. He says, take care, brethren, that there be... There not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, apostatizes from the living God. Now, isn't that interesting? He calls them brethren. Why? Because they're hanging around in the church, because they call themselves brethren, because they act like brethren, but he knows. He knows some of them. Some of them there are most likely those who have an evil, unbelieving heart and at some time in the future will fall away from the faith. They hang around with Christians, but they are tares among the wheat. They are goats among the sheep. They are sitting ducks for apostasy. Thomas Watson also said in his work, The Godly Men's Picture, that there is no one more ripe for apostasy than a lukewarm professing Christian. The great terror of apostasy is this. Listen. Once a person receives full revelation, once a person comes to church, once they hear the gospel preached over and over again, once they have taken up their Bible and read their Bible and been involved in the ministry and received all the revelation they could ever need to come to Christ and then have rejected that revelation, they guarantee their eternal destruction. And they are lost 
forever. That is what an apostate is. And that is why it is such a serious matter. The author of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 6, that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. It is impossible, he says, to renew these people to repentance. That is a scary place to be in. There is no scarier place. He says in Hebrews 10, 26 through 27, For if we go on sinning willfully... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. It's over. That's all they have to wait for. If they have received the knowledge of the truth and they have rejected it, it's over. They have gone apostate. Listen to what Peter says, speaking to the apostates that he had to deal with. He says this in 2 Peter 2, 20-22, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first There is only one thing worse than being an unbeliever, and that's being an apostate unbeliever. Do you know of anyone who has once heard the word? Who once received the word with joy, said they believed it? Maybe came to church on a regular basis, maybe got involved in ministry, maybe got involved in Bible study and then fell away? have fallen away and have entangled themselves in the sins that they formerly escaped from, have walked away from the truth they once claimed to hold dear, these are apostates. Do you know anyone who used to be involved in going to church? But now they have fallen and embraced the world and the worldly ways all over again. These are apostates. 1 John 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. I know there are people here this morning. I know this. People here who are deceived into thinking they're Christians. People who think with a very sincere heart... I am the Christian. But if you really knew their heart, you would know they they come to church to appease their conscience. They come to church to appease their parents. They come to church to feel good about themselves, to make God feel good about them. There has been a steady stream of people who thought they were Christians, who thought they knew Christ, in this church, come to know the Lord. And this is a scary thing. These people are people who have attended church for a long time, who have attended Bible studies for a long time, who have been involved in ministry for a long time, yet they did not know the Lord. Inside, they really had an evil, unbelieving heart. And you're going to hear some of their testimonies in a couple of weeks when we have the baptism service. They looked and acted like Christians. They heard countless of sermons and went to many Bible studies, memorized scripture, but they never repented of their sins. They never really received Christ as their Lord and Savior. They wanted Jesus to save them from hell. I mean, if you were to ask them, do you want to go to hell? They'd say no. They wanted fire insurance, but they didn't want a Lord. Inside their whole life, was for them. Their whole life was a life of selfish pursuits. They studied the Bible so other people would marvel at what they knew. They studied the Bible to fit in. They did ministry so other people would notice them. Give them accolades. 
But they didn't do any of it for the glory of God. They knew in their heart that they had no power to gain victory over their sins. Every one of them said, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't stop sinning. I mean, I'd try and go through the, the shallow confession thing, but you know what? I didn't want to stop sinning. I mean, I wanted to stop sinning, but I really didn't want to stop sinning. I mean, I didn't want to really give my life to Christ. I, I wanted to be good, but I didn't want Jesus telling me what to do all the time, just some of the time. Listen, people, you don't become a Christian by calling yourself one. It's not like becoming a Democrat or Republican. You don't just claim a party. You've got to be saved. You've got to understand that Christ died for you on the cross because you couldn't save yourself. He suffered your penalty. He took your sins upon Him, and now He stands before you as the Savior, the only Savior, and the Lord, the King of heaven and earth. And He is willing to save you if you are willing to have Him be your Master. But He is not willing to have you be a rebel. He is not willing to have part of you. He wants it all. You must be willing to take up your cross and give up all and follow Him. You must turn from your wicked ways and your wicked thoughts and receive Him and His ways and His thoughts. And I would encourage you to just look in your heart. What do you see there? And when you look in your heart, what do you see there? Look at your life this last week, this last month. What do you see? Do you see a person who loves God? Who loves fellowshipping with the saints? Who loves God's word? Who loves to fellowship with God in prayer? Who is excited about people coming to the Lord? Who is being changed? Who is being challenged? Who comes before God just, just broken over your sin? Is, is that what you see? Or do you just see somebody who's going through the motions? Do you see a lukewarm, professing Christian ripe for apostasy? Satan's favorite thing is to hunt in the church on Sunday morning. This is his... I mean, we're all here. He looks around and he sees those who are making a false profession... Oh, we don't know who they are, but he knows. Because he sees them cave in all the time to his temptations. He knows they have no armor to protect them. They, they, they cannot put on the spiritual armor, for they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They do not have the Good Shepherd protecting them. They are like wounded wildebeests in the plains of Africa. And he is looking for them to get away from the herd. So he can cut them out and devour them. He knows they don't know Christ. They are vulnerable there. Because they have never really given themselves completely to Jesus Christ. They've just wanted to be a party allegiance, but not life. They want Jesus to save them from hell, but not to live for him today. And so... What we have learned from this text is this. Do you understand the Bible contains the explicit words of the Holy Spirit? Do you understand that the explicit words of the Holy Spirit are telling you to beware today? And do you understand that the Holy Spirit is telling you to beware today because some will fall away from the faith? It grieves me when I see people fall away from the faith. I've known people who in college, I remember people in college, very excited about the Lord, very joyful about the Word of God, who just have gone apostate. So, have you searched your heart and asked God, do I live for you, God, or do I live for me? Do I worship for you, God, or do I worship for me? Do I read the Bible for you, God, so you can change my life? Or do I read the Bible so other people will be impressed by how much I know? Is your heart full of secret, unconfessed sins, or is it wiped clean with confession and repentance? 
If you look in your heart and you realize you don't know Christ, today is the day of salvation, right now. Christ is willing to save you if you are willing to come before Him humbly and repent and receive what He did for you, not what you're going to do for Him. He wants to save you. Don't go on deceiving yourselves. He stands before you as the righteous one of God slain in your place and you will either surrender and submit to him or you will not. He has set before you life and death. Don't say no or you will be the lion's next victim. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning with a very serious passage before us. Father, we know because the Spirit has explicitly told us in this text that there is a real and present danger of apostasy right now. Among all these people here who call themselves Christians, there are most likely those who have an evil, unbelieving heart here. And that if they don't come to repentance, if you don't save them, if you don't give them the grace and faith to believe, if you don't make them humble and break them, Father, they will go on being deceived and will be so vulnerable and open to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Father, I pray right now that you would do a work in people's hearts here who don't know you, that, Father, you would grant them repentance. Father, that they would come to the knowledge of your truth. They would realize that Christ has done it all, and they just need to submit to him and what he has done to receive him and be saved. Father, I pray that you would grant people repentance. For us who do know you, may we be alert. May we be on guard. May we be watching. May we be ready so that when false teachers come in, when deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons arise from our own midst, we would see them clearly and make sure they don't spread and infect the body and rip your flock to shreds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.